0: Podcast
1: One. If you think pop-up stores are best suited to fashion, cosmetic, and phone accessory retailers, then think again. Today's guest may just change your thinking, and before you know it, you may be selling your product or service in the middle of a large shopping centre. It's a Challenge Everything, Episode 508 of the award-winning Small Business Big Marketing Podcast.
0: Where I say, welcome to a small
1: business marketing show, where successful small
0: business owners share their souls. To take your marketing straight to the lead now, here's your host, Mr. Tim
1: Bowe. And welcome back to your weekly dose of Here Today, Gone Tomorrow Marketing. I'm your host, Timbo Reed. You, infinitely more importantly, are a motivated business owner, and you are ready to crank out some great marketing to build that beautiful business of yours into the empire it absolutely deserves to be. And that's exactly why this podcast exists. But if that's not enough for you, then you can grab a copy of my popular marketing book, The Boomerang Effect, that will show you step-by-step how being helpful in your marketing returns you more customers and makes you more money. We love that. Grab your copy over at smallbusinessbigmarketing.com. Now, we have a very big episode for you today. We meet pop-up store expert, Michelle Young, who's going to get you thinking differently. This week's monster prize draw winner implemented one idea from this podcast, which has proved in their words, a game changer. And i let you in on next week's guest, who's got his backup about invisible marketing visible marketing, all will be revealed next week. As per usual team, there is marketing G-O-L-D dripping from the ceiling over here at Small Business Big Marketing's HQ. So let's get stuck right in. Michelle Young is the founder of two businesses in the cosmetics industry, The cosmetic department is a wholesale business she launched 14 years ago in response to the crazy high prices women pay for cosmetics in Australia, and that they do. I've paid them, not for myself, but for others.' And Pop-Up Cosmetics is the retail extension of her wholesale business that takes out short-term shopping centre leases and sells cosmetics at up to 85% off regular retail prices. I've always wondered how they do that. Well, we're about to find out. Now, we cover plenty of ground in this chat from How Michelle Has Built Her Pop-Up Empire to the future of retailing, to business owner mindset. She's very big on that. And most importantly, I think you'll find Michelle's view on what types of businesses pop-ups are suited to very interesting. Now, I actually recorded this interview in the middle of the pandemic. So I started off by asking Michelle how her business had been affected and what she's done about it.
0: Well, it's been very interesting. With Pop-Up Cosmetics, which is our retail business, we have five stores that move around and take up empty space in shopping centres. But with coronavirus, we've had to shut them all down and take all the contents, the stock, the fixtures, the point of sale counter back to the warehouse in Sydney and we're, we are literally in hibernation mode and although a lot of other retailers have opened back up, unfortunately for us, you know, we're selling brand name cosmetics starting at $3. The numbers just don't stack up for us if we can't let people inside the stores or can't let more than the, you know, one person per four metre uh, squared customers inside. It's just, um, especially with, you know, we have peaks and troughs throughout lunchtime. And I just, I couldn't imagine saying to customers at the door, sorry, you can't come in. The whole thing of our concept is that sales buzz and people pile in the shop and they're grabbing their baskets, grabbing their stock. So it's affected us greatly.
1: Well, fortunately, you've got two businesses. You've got the cosmetic department. So let's rewind back to 2006 when you started the cosmetic department, which is an importer and wholesaler of brand name cosmetics. Uh, What did you launch that business in response to?
0: Well, I took a trip overseas and I'd seen movements in the fragrant market here in Australia, seeing, you know, brand name fragrances come down in price. And I thought, oh, are they fake or what's going on here? But at the same time, I I went to a trip, my first trip to the United States and I needed to get a mascara. And I, I went to a local department store in LA and I bought it for half of what I was paying in Australia. And I just couldn't understand like i was only 27 i'm like okay what's going on here I, it it just fascinated me so when i came back i started researching and, and and looked into this whole area of which is what i do parallel importing or gray market importing and um it took about six months of researching and talking to different people. Can I do this? How can I do it? What are the rules? Because there's a lot of rules and things you don't want to do in that environment. But yeah, we, we started with a wholesale business and that's still going now, 14 years later, and we sell brand name cosmetics online to other retailers.
1: Can you explain parallel importing or grey market? What was the other one? Grey market?
0: Yeah, so grey market. So basically you can purchase products, obviously businesses purchase products through authorised distributors and that is the 99% of business owners to do that. But I saw an opportunity 14 years ago where I could parallel import, which basically means I'm buying the same product from an overseas supplier and then bringing it into a country um, and competing in that same market with the brand name owners themselves. It's it's a it's a little bit of a complicated industry, and um, you know you got to watch out for a lot of things. And I've certainly had my share of things like that. But um, it is very fascinating, and it's how in Australia, countries that have a high recommended retail price on goods, like in Australia, we do with cosmetics, perfume, joggers, anything like that.
1: Pretty much everything. Australia is expensive,
0: and the whole reason we are is because we don't border countries that you know you can't just cross the border and buy something cheaper. So, it's kind of, there's been a bit of a monopoly and it's exposing that arbitrage difference in prices with the recommended retail prices.
1: I imagine the young Michelle Young, excuse the pun, uh, 27, (laughs) 28 years old, uh, probably got a bit of hate mail and a few calls uh, from local distributors saying, uh, can you just get off our turf?
0: I know. Well, and and even like my first year of business, I got cease and desist by Probably the biggest player in the world. Um, so that Who? was, ve- well, I, I don't even want to say that's how much fear they put <laughs> oh, into a, me.
1: It's like Voldemort. Don't mention Voldemort.
0: I know we're competing in their market, but fortunately in Australia and, you know, you aren't following the rules. I'm, I don't ever pretend to be affiliated with these brands. We compete like, you know, there's a lot of companies that do do this now, but 14 years ago, it wasn't very popular. But I mean, these big companies send out season and desist letters, hundreds of them every day, just to squash little people like Did me. Did you
1: know so that back then?
0: I was devastated. I didn't. I was so young and... Um, I talked to lots of people and they, you know, and even I went and then had to go and get a lawyer. Um, You know, they said to me that, you know, they do, they send out hundreds of these letters, but they found the case very interesting. And they said, if it does have to go to court, you will need a QC uh, of which it's $10,000 a day. And I did not have that kind of money, Um, but they found it so interesting. He, one of the partners said, I will do it for you if it goes to that, but fortunately they dropped the case and I agreed to do different things, but a very challenging time like we're in right now, but I got through it and I'm going to get through this one and come out bigger and better on the other side.
1: <laughs> yeah, love that. You are very much into mindset and I want to talk to you about that later on. So, okay, you you launch the cosmetic department, you are bringing in bulk cosmetics uh, and selling them again in bulk to the local chemist or the local whoever it is that was wanting to buy How did you go about getting your customers in those early days?
0: We, I extracted a database from the Yellow Pages and we called every single pharmacy and asked for their email address. And it was myself and another girl in a tiny office, Southport, Gold Coast, Queensland, calling the 5,000 pharmacies. Obviously, the big players didn't want to know us, but there's plenty of independent pharmacies that loved our concept, knowing that for a small outlay they could get... um, access to those brand name products and compete with the big guys.
1: I, I love that. That just puts the fear of God into me, cold calling. But so- <laughs> I um, hate it too. <laughs> did you back then, I mean, did naivety play a really big role? What did you have to lose? you you got a lot of stock sitting in a warehouse somewhere. So there's the pressure of that. So tell me about naivety. And did you have some kind of amazing pitch? Because you've got to get past it. Who's going to answer the phone at the local pharmacy? You know, I it know. could be anyone from the- And
0: they're busy. They're filling scripts. They do not want to talk to me. Um, and I did try pounding the pavement, of which I equally despise. <laughs> but I learned that I could only see 10 customers go and try and interrupt 10 pharmacies filling scripts, which is obviously very important, to talk to me to try and sell them brand name cosmetics. I realised I get much more leverage online, so I just focused on getting that database. And... I think, I, I don't know if I, I mean, I probably was naive. I probably still am a little bit naive, but there's a drive in me that overrules that. And um, I remembered I, I had a little note, because at this time when I started the business, I was still working at a university full time, but I asked my boss, hey, can I do my five days over four days so that I had three days to work on my business? And I carried around a little note in my purse for a year saying, hey, if X brand want to sue me, I must be onto a good thing. And I carried that note around to remind me every day that, no, you're onto a good thing because why would they care what you're doing in their space? And then, it, you know, I waited till my sales reached my income and then I left that job.
1: I love that. I love that little note. Have you still got it? I
0: do. I do. I have it with a few. I don't have a lot of sentimental things because I like to be able to move anywhere quickly, kind of the concept of pop-up, but <laughs> yeah, I do still have that note.
1: T- tell me about negotiating with suppliers. So, the one end, you, you're embarking on this cold calling, cold emailing thing to establish the business. The other end of that business is negotiating with a whole lot. I imagine quite a lot of suppliers in order to get great deals. Because if you're not getting great deals, then you can't offer great deals at the other end.
0: Absolutely. It all comes down to price. And it also comes down to the price is dictated by the volume that you buy. So, you know, when I first started, I was only importing boxes. Now we import pallets. So I've got 14 years of buying experience. So I'm obviously getting it cheaper, but we would just put our own margin on the products. And, you know, 14 years ago, I wasn't able to offer products as cheap as I do now. So I didn't have much bargaining power at the start. I always would ask for a discount, but it's a very fine line because there's so many people around the world they might want to sell to. I'm trying to build a relationship at the same time. I don't want to push that relationship too far. So I just started small and then just worked my way to buying more.
1: Can you remember the point, Michelle, where you've got you got a list of 5,500 pharmacies? Can you remember, was there a tipping point where it clicked, you leave university and things are rocking?
0: Yeah, there was. I remembered while I was building the wholesale database, I was also selling the discount cosmetics on eBay. And I remember it clicked for me when, you know, once you've listed all the products, the sales would come in. There wasn't very much work around it versus going and working five days full time you know, it was I was leveraged in that space, but, you know, eBay became way too competitive and then the pharmacy and the wholesale thing took off. So, yeah, it was really when I realised, hang on a minute, I could work five days really hard for someone else, or I could probably work one day for myself and there's no limit. And that's what I really like about business is that there is no limits.
1: <laughs> okay. So, the cosmetic department is going really well. At some point you then go, I'm going to become a bit of a pop-up store expert and you launch a second business which is pop-up cosmetics was that it what was that in response to the fact that you you had a whole lot of stuff sitting in the warehouse that wasn't selling through
0: well i was approached by an you know how there's a lot of online deal sites so i was approached by a gentleman very smooth talking salesman from one of those online spaces who saw what i was doing in the wholesale market wanted me to run this online sale convinced me and that here actually there you go i was naive i imported way too much cosmetics that I could sell if I couldn't move them. But I believed what he said. I believed the numbers. And I imported $27,000 worth of cosmetics and had to pay my supplier in 30 days. And the sale went up and it flopped because another cosmetic person was running a a concurrent sale, but the prices were cheaper. So, it flopped. And I was like, okay, I've got to move this stock. And um, I had a small office warehouse storage space in Rosebury. And I had seen other wholesalers, like clothing wholesalers, run these one or two day warehouse sales. And I'd always tried to go to those sales. So I thought, okay, that's interesting. I dropped a very small amount of flyers and I ran my own little warehouse sale, which I called a pop-up sale. And it was on level three, of an office building, but I had like a storage area. I remember I was even stuck in traffic on the way there. And when I got there, people were lining up out the door going, you were supposed to open at 10, you were supposed to open at 10. I couldn't believe it. And it was packed for the whole four hours that I was open. I was like, wow, this is interesting. People, Women are going to walk up three flights of stairs to buy discount cosmetics.
1: Was that about, I mean, you created something, an event. We all love an event in your promotional material, had you gone with a lost leader that people thought, you know, like a, a, a product that it was well-priced?
0: I pretty much was. They were lost leaders because I was just trying to get my money back. So I sold things for cost price. Like I was selling cosmetics at $1 and $2 because I just wanted to get the people there. But because I thought the results were quite interesting and if women are prepared to do that, I then went to a very popular outlet street and I went to a man and said, hey, can I rent that part in your car spot and tried a different one on the ground?" And then And I amped up the advertising, did the whole Facebook thing and ran a four-day sale, open nine to five. And then I was like, you know. (laughs) What
1: what do you mean you went to a man (laughs) and asked if you could borrow his car spot?
0: We do crazy things as business owners, but um, I'd seen the potential from level three in this little office space. And I thought, okay, where do people go for discount? things and there was a strip in Alexandria that's, you know, anyone would know what that is in in Sydney Um, and they've got a lot of outlet centres where the big brands like clothing brands or shoe brands and there was a discount shoe place but he had a really big undercover car park and I said, can I please rent that space over there where the bins are Um, because I want to have a pop-up sale and yeah, I'll pay you $600 for the four days and yeah, he was like, yeah, why not? And I had to go get public liability insurance for that, and I did. And then, yeah, ran this sale, ran it by myself, and it was crazy.
1: That's fantastic. I'm, I'm, I'm really keen to explore how, because obviously, my listeners come from a very broad range of industries. Probably, you know, many, many different types of industries. And how can they embrace this concept of of pop up stores? Um, so you've gone okay. The car parks worked. The level three, of the office buildings worked was the next step to go, I'm going to go and find um, a shop in a high street that's vacant for short-term lease or did you go into a shopping centre?
0: No, I I thought shopping centres are not going to have me because we've got the big guys in there, you know, the big pharmacy chains. Those shopping centre managers are going to be loyal to them and I totally get that. Now we work together but Yeah, I thought I'll start with high street, but the problem with that is they're not interested in having a tenant for four days. They want a two-year tenant. So, I then um, came up with a bit of a strategy, which is the truth. When a prospective tenant sees my pop-up shop buzzing, you are going to get your long-term tenant. So, that was the sales pitch that I put to the real estate agents. Yeah, so I said, we'll we'll find you a long-term tenant because all you have to do is line up your prospective tenants over that four-day period and tell them to come and look. And then they'll sign a lease with you. So that was the strategy for a long time was taking those high street strips.
1: <laughs> so, okay, so you're starting to, you're starting to occupy vacant shops. Um, what are you paying for a, you know, a four-day lease in a high street? I suppose it depends on where it is, but...
0: It really depends. I have had rent as low as $500 and as high as a discounted $5,000. So it's huge, the difference. And not always that price is reflected in the sales. I've had one of my lowest rents produce my best turnover for the year. So it's not always reflective.
1: Well, let's break that down because my next question was, what's been your most successful pop-up and why? What did you do right?
0: I've had two really successful ones that stick out, like from a turnover perspective, why they were so um, amazing in two completely different environments. One was on a high street in Parramatta and it was a... um, What was it? I think it was a closed down big outlet, but it had huge street frontage, which also plays a major part in why a pop-up shop is successful or not. But yeah, it had huge street frontage. That one was amazing, a four-day sale. And obviously, these are all high foot traffic areas. Um, Another one was in the city coming off a train station with city workers coming and going. And that was another record sale. So both of those, again, that was a mini shopping centre off a train station. And another one was a high traffic area on a main strip.
1: You've had examples where, you know, like an underground car park and an office on the third floor has no traffic. Both things have no traffic. On the other side of it, you've got, you know, high streets and a shop near a train station, all that kind of stuff, heaps of foot traffic. And clearly, shopping centres also bring a lot of foot traffic. That's just, is that your strategy now, which is to find short-term leases in places that have foot traffic, which means you have to do less promotion?
0: Yeah. Well, see, at, at the start, we played a lot around with the marketing, what worked. Every single customer was asked how they heard about the sale, whether that was from our email database, whether it was from Facebook, whether it was from the flyer. We were doing old school DL flyers, which I'll probably go back to, actually, after when we start back up.
1: I love a good DL.
0: Oh, and it was beautiful. It was bright yellow. My old business coach used to call me, you're the JB Hi-Fi of cosmetics.
1: (laughs) Well, that's interesting in itself. Was it by default that it was bright yellow? Because I think bright yellow says... I
0: just wanted to attract attention.
1: And it says, I think it says cheap.
0: Yeah, yeah. And we are, we are. We're quality, but we're cheap. Yeah, so we we played a lot around with the marketing and worked out what worked and what didn't work. But interesting, when we started to have our opportunities of going into shopping centres, we would do up a one-page PDF that was infographics of where all the customers come came from. So we'd say, okay, we we're at your shopping centre for seven days. We had 1,000 customers come through. 30% was directly from our advertising. So we would say we brought an additional... 300 people plus potentially their partners and children into your shopping centre spending money with the surrounding retailers and we use that as a strategy to get into more shopping centres because we were giving them some numbers. They don't quite often get those numbers from their tenants and they really liked that and they thought, okay, this is interesting and then that's share it with their other shopping centres in the group. So, that's how we kind of got into more groups.
1: I think the great lesson there is anything you can do to make it easier For someone to either buy off you or to offer you some kind of contract or deal, the better. And I think a lot of us sometimes don't. We kind of just walk in, you know, assuming that the conversation's going to go our way but I know uh, the more work you can do and position yourself as someone hey you know Michelle clearly knows what she's doing because I imagine in your industry there'd be a lot of cowboys and girls
0: absolutely and that's um when we were only running one or two it was very easy to feed back that marketing info to the leasing manager but as we grew and got up to five we dropped the ball on some of those things and you know we're going to go back to doing that because it is really what's important and I think as we grew what I felt to me was fast because it was (laughs) you know go 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 all the time. uh, We need to go back to those things because it's important and it keeps those relationships.
1: Tell me about building a database, Michelle, because on one hand you are placing your pop-ups in where there's foot traffic. That's great. But are you now, is is now part of your mandate to make sure that you get uh, an email address or or a mobile number of everyone who comes through and how do you do that?
0: Yeah, we get um, at the point of sale, of which I tested seven before I went with the one that I did, we've got not only that we put custom buttons on where the person um, heard about the sale, but every at the end of every um, sale, we our staff are to ask them can we get your email address to let you know about other sales? And then those email addresses are tagged at the at the shopping centre suburb that they signed up for, and so that then we can invite them to the next one and, you know, later on. I mean, who knows what we'll do with that uh, email address and the suburb later on, especially as we're trying to make little sales regions, just, you know, keeping it open for as many opportunities as possible. How big's your list? Uh, we've got 25,000, yeah. But, you know, we've, been, we've had sales before where when we ask every customer how they heard about the sale, sometimes 10% of our customers are coming from that database. So, we do have people that follow us around.
1: Yeah, no doubt. I, I don't think it'd be a very local type business. Uh, I think, you know, given what you're offering and the money people are going to save and the fact that, you know, you are often experienced, people would tra- probably travel to the other side of town.
0: Yeah. And they tell their friends about it. And also, people will often live in one place, but work in another. So, you know, when we were dropping those flyers, we were dropping them to commercial businesses as well as residential and 10,000 in a, in, in, if we had a shop at, in a particular suburb, we would drop 10,000 flyers in that area and it would go to businesses as well. Sometimes the flyer might be in the lunchroom and five ladies see that and then they all come in and say, oh, the person in the office handed it around and it's a good um,
1: thing. <laughs> Give us a sense of what a typical pop-up costs. Let's choose a shopping centre and uh, we either can choose, like, the middle of the aisle, the walkway or a, or a shop, but what's a, what can we expect for a typical lease and what are all the other associated costs?
0: Obviously, if we're going to take a fixed retail store, it would cost a lot more money, but we've made our concept very nimble. It packs up really quickly and packs down really quickly. So we actually don't put anything on the walls. The tro- transport trolleys that we wheel into the shopping centres convert into tables so that nothing needs to come and go. It's just they're open for business and close. So that reduces a lot of cost. But so the only overheads that we're paying is the actual lease, which, as I said, that can vary greatly. Um, the average is about 2000 But, I mean, who knows what it's going to be like after this. For how long? For the week. Some shopping centres require a certain minimum period too. So, it, but, yeah, it can vary greatly from $500 to $5,000 depending on the location and the size. I don't find there's a lot of difference between actual shops and kiosks. You know the parts in the middle of the shopping centres because the prices are dictated by traffic areas, and those kiosks are in high traffic areas. But that doesn't work for all. We we do both now because our sale is dependent on real estate supply. So taking up those kiosks allows us to have more positions if there's not as many empty shops. So yeah, the cost is the is the staff overheads and the rent. You know, obviously all the head office costs as well associated with it, but we've tried to remove as many costs as we can. And because we're not doing that expensive fit out, we are profitable straight away. Like we're not having to wait a long time to recoup those fit out costs because our fitter travels with us and it's been specifically designed to be fast at setting up and really fast packing down. And it goes all on the back of a tailgate lift truck and goes on to the next place. Is
1: shoplifting a big problem?
0: It is. And I mean it is a problem. And the fact that the cosmetics are so tiny, it is a problem. But our girls are really customer service security guards because, you know, you don't have to sell brand name cosmetics. The brands sell themselves and the price point sells themselves. They're really there to, you know, be helpful, deliver great customer service, hand out shopping baskets and make sure people aren't stealing things.
1: What's the conversation look like when one of your girls sees someone put something in their pocket?
0: You know, I always say to them, risking your life, chasing after someone, having someone spit on you is not worth a three dollar cosmetic product. You know, you're there to prevent it and you know and you know, obviously be a deterrent. You know, I tell them if there's a manager on duty to get the manager as well, and you just kindly approach the customer and say, hey, you need to put all cosmetic products in the baskets. I noticed that you pop something into your bag or your pocket. And then, of course, they deny it. But um, it's it's a very careful approach because, uh, you know, we have a lot of young girls that move around working in all these different shopping centres and, and they've got different demographics and it, it can be dangerous. So, yeah, it, it's not worth it. But they, they do know what they're doing and um, they have to keep their eyes on the floor.
1: What opportunities do you see for other categories, to make use of pop ups. It seems that, you know, in my experience is that cosmetics, no brainer. Shoes seems to be a no brainer. Artwork seems to be a no brainer. Are uh, there categories where you, you know, as someone who now knows the pop up industry well, do you look and go, oh, geez, you know, there's such a potential for maybe a service provider or another product category? What have you seen?
0: I do, and I have to stop my brain having more ideas until I nail the first one, right? So I do. But I think if you were only going to have one store that moved around, there's an opportunity for any business to have a pop-up. I can't imagine that people that would embark on a retail lease without testing the traffic count, or you know, I see it time and time again. That's quite shocking to me because I've gone to places and thought, okay, that's going to be amazing sales, it's a flop, or I've gone to a place and thought, oh, it'll be ho hum, and then it's amazing. So. I think you could have one in any industry, but once you start getting up the numbers of how many, like there's a lot of logistics once you start moving around and like across the five shops that we have, that means five different doors to operate. That's 30 different staff entering and exiting premises that might have troubles with the locks. It's setting up in a different space every single time but trying to deliver the same brand message. It's very difficult once you start running multiple sites because there's just too many logistics.
1: What about a plumber or an accountant who services a local area who could potentially who's take out a short term lease for, say, a week in a shopping centre where their prospects are shopping and offering some kind of advice booth or come and ask a plumber, a local plumber a question. Is that a dumb idea or?
0: No, I don't think so. I don't think so. But you've got to look at what that cost is versus the potential leads he's going to get or sales he's going, he or she is going to get.
1: Well, geez, at two grand a week in a shopping centre, which is what I think you said, that sounds very cheap and it sounds like a good idea. And I'm going to put a licence on that and anyone who uses it needs to give me 10 grand. <laughs>
0: Well, you know, I had a shopping centre manager say to me, like, you know, those spots in the middle of the um, way where they put a car from a car dealership? They were selling one car a week from that slot. That's amazing.
1: It is amazing.
0: So I really think, you know, if you can move cars around down to tiny, tiny cosmetics, you can move anything around because you're you're getting in front of your customers in a way that you can't do on the phone or visiting them. You're
1: going to share an idea that you're bursting to put into a pop-up scenario that you just know you're not going to get around to?
0: I've always thought it would work well with vitamins. Vitamins, everyone's really health oriented. Probably just losing my spots right now as I speak, but
1: <laughs> stay focused. You, you are the pop up cosmetic queen. No,
0: oh, absolutely no. Don't worry, I will.
1: Another interview I've done recently is with a guy who's all about product licensing, and you know he's frustrated by the fact that so many smaller smaller size businesses aren't embracing licensing. And I'm just wondering whether it's the same here, where we've we've happened upon this strategy of pop up stores that really should be you know, other businesses could be embracing. I really like that. You're a bit of a retailer now. You you've you know you've been retailing for a long time. What have you learnt? Because retailing it's the front line, isn't it? It's like you get it right there, then you are gonna be good at customer service, you're gonna be good at pricing, you're gonna be you're gonna be nimble. What have you learnt as a retailer?
0: I think the most important thing, and it's only it's gonna be even more important coming out of this COVID, is the first impressions. Anytime I walk into one of the pop-up stores, I'm instantly looking from the customer's eyes. Is there a stain there? Is like, you know, have someone spilt a product? Is what's open? What's out of place? I think that that first impressions is the main thing. I mean, the other thing, which is what our model thrives off, is there is a reason to buy because we're only there for one week. And if they don't, but you can still create that buzz in a normal retail store by changing it up. You know, people are so used to seeing everything on sale. You've got to think, what can I do to make this sale different? You know, whether it's those spin, you know, the the prize wheels, they don't cost a lot of money, but they create a huge buzz. Enter your email address to get a spin on the wheel and it just creates a bit of hype. So I think people need to think... How do I get the attention of the customer zooming past and create something that's a reason to stop today?
1: Do you love it? Do you love what you do?
0: I do love it. I do like I'm a, I'm a lot more of a behind the scenes person, but I do love business and I love the creativity that I that the business enables me and I've got great staff that are in the stores that that love being on the customer front and um, love being having an opportunity to start in the cosmetic industry.
1: Tell me about creativity, because it's a word I don't think gets used enough when we're talking about business. We talk, you know, we talk about marketing and we talk about cash flow and HR and real estate and law and licensing. And all this. <laughs> but creativity is so important. How do you exercise your cre- We're all creative. How do you exercise it? Do you put time aside?
0: Yeah, we are. We are. Everybody probably gets their creative impulses differently. For me, I will just have an idea pop in my head and then I'll write it on an iPhone note and then it will transfer to my sort of project management thing. And some of those ideas, like I don't even touch for a year or I'll register a domain in something that I know maybe two years down the track I might look at. But I think those creative spurts are impulses. And I know Pop-Up Cosmetics was started with that type of creative impulse. And I I feel like I downloaded the business idea in 15 minutes and then I rolled it out. So I definitely take notice when I have those impulses and um, like currently at the moment I'm having a lot of ideas because I've slowed down enough you know I mean sometimes I'm driving a, a truck with a tailgate lift on the back I'm not being too creative then <laughs> but you know now slowing down and I go for my walks in the morning and um, I think it's really important to spend that time and however you can get that like you know what it's like when you go on a holiday you, you you do get those ideas because you've slowed down enough to hear the messages to hear the messages that are trying to come through but when you're just going go 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 like all business owners are, there's no time to receive the creativity.
1: You are very big on mindset training, my research tells me.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. What's the training that's had the most impact on you and how?
0: Um, I've had a lot of training in two different types of ways and I feel both were very important. I needed to train my brain to know that there was always a way. No matter what was thrown at me, there's always a way. And so, you know, he's not everybody's cup of tea, but I think he's amazing and it's the Tony Robbins training. I have literally been brainwashed in a positive way to always find a way. And so that was really important for me. I needed that. But you're not really implementing while you're there. You are getting mindset training. You're getting your psychology for success set in stone so that you're just wired that way. You're looking for opportunities. You're looking where you can pounce and where you shouldn't. But, you know, I think there's a lot of value in the other sort of mindset training where you are implementing and there's a structure around that so that every week you know what you're working on. Um, I have had an amazing business coach who I know has been on your show. Um, That's amazing, Tina Tower. So she coached me. Yeah, she coached me every week for an hour of power and I did that with her for two and a half years and that was so important because it came down into the nitty-gritty. What are you working on? What are you working on next week? Why didn't you do that? I'm like, oh, I just couldn't. Why couldn't you? <laughs> you know? So I think both are really important. But for me, and everybody struggles with their own things, I needed both because I've built both businesses by myself with no capital. I've bootstrapped everything. I needed to be trained in a particular way and um, I did become obsessed.
1: (laughs) That's great. Oh, Tina, fantastic. So you seem a very motivated person off the bat, but you really rely on having that mentor or that coach alongside you. You still still have someone?
0: I I don't at the moment. It's only because I took a break because I knew what I needed to focus on for the next six months is building this online um, training manual for all of the stores. So I I knew what I had to do and when you pay a high level of money, You don't want to have more things on your plate and not have time to do them. So I've only just taken a break on that. But I definitely believe that no matter what level of business you're at, a mentor or a coach will take you there faster. It's just putting that accelerator down. Um, Yeah, I'm a big believer in that. And I think it's, it's it's so valuable. And you get your money back tenfold.
1: Even a good podcast, Michelle.
0: Absolutely. With exactly. Me? Exactly. You know I'm, I'm definitely you're with you. picking up what I'm putting down? I'm definitely picking up what you're putting down. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: it's good. You've had a bit of a dream ride, but I'm guessing uh, it hasn't all been up, up, up. Tell us about a moment when things weren't going so well for one of your businesses.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, I suppose along the 14-year journey, there's been the three major things. One was the legal action from one of the big brands. The second was the global financial crisis. You know, we had to pivot then. And now this um, COVID. But although it was shocking the first couple of weeks, hemorrhaging money and getting my head around things, it is a blessing in disguise for business. I mean, there's no blessing in, in people getting sick. But for, for business and for my business, it's a great opportunity to roll out those big projects that you would never get a chance to do. And yeah, I, I'm not chasing that quick buck of selling products online. In a retail environment, I'm playing a long game. We want to expand the business. So, I'm, I'm focusing on what is needed to play the long game successfully.
1: Has been. A ble- I mean, for th- there'll be business owners who would disagree with what you said because they're no longer in business and, you know, how yeah, f- you feel for them? But you're absolutely right. For those of us who have somehow been able to navigate what's been placed in front of us, the idea of exploring that idea list that we've been carrying for a few years and finding time and space to just kind of think creatively, it has been a bit of a blessing and we've all slowed down. It has. A- a- as a result. What frustrates you the most, Michelle, about running your business?
0: Um I'm terribly upset when I walk into a store and I see the girls on their mobile phone. <laughs> like I wanna throw it out the window. And certainly pop-up 2.0 will have a whole new set of rules around that. It's also the to scale, you have to let go and understand that everything that we do is systemized and we're starting to build, like move all of our paper systems to videos. You gotta let go of if I was in the store, this is how I would do it and let all of the girls have their opportunity of creativity. And as long as it's meeting the objectives of, you know, customer impression and customer service, it doesn't matter how it gets done. At the start, I was pretty frustrated, like, no, I wouldn't do it like that. But it's- people will do it better than me all the time. Like, of course they're going to.
1: Great story. Well, I hope we've inspired some, you know, business owners who would never have even considered uh, a pop-up strategy to actually do one.
0: Absolutely. And, and you know, Tim, even though I've started two business in the beauty space, I'm not a beautician. I'm not a qualified beauty therapist. I'm, I'm a business person like everybody else. So it's it's not like you need to be interested in cosmetics. To do this,
1: how can people find out more about you?
0: Um, they can connect with me on LinkedIn if, or if you just Google Michelle Young Pop Up Cosmetics or they can email me hello at popupcosmetics.com.au.
1: Love it. Well, well done to you for uh, what is a great business journey and thank you for sharing it with us.
0: That's okay. Thank you for having me.
1: Well, there you go, team. Pop up store expert Michelle Young. Here's what grabbed my attention from that chat Attention grabber number one. First impressions count. Great advice. Couldn't agree more. You know, when I was the marketing manager for Flight Centre, every now and then a store owner would call me and say, oh, you know, we're not doing so well here. And I'd go out to their store. And the very first thing I would do is I'd take the store manager outside and ask them to walk back into their store as if they were a customer and look around and see the chewing gum in the carpet, hear the commercial radio blaring in the background, seeing the empty brochure stands, right? Look at your business from a customer's point of view and you'll realize that there are some first impressions that you could improve on. Attention grabber number two, create buzz in your business. I love this, Michelle did it via a spinning wheel. What can you do to create buzz in your precious business? What a fun question to ask. And attention grabber number three, I love Michelle's belief that pop-ups are suited to many types of businesses. I've actually got a discussion going in our Facebook group asking members how they could utilise a pop-up strategy. If you'd like to see the answers and the ideas coming from that, all you need to do is search Small Business Big Marketing Tribe on Facebook and you could join that discussion. It's quite inspiring. That's what grabbed my attention. Whatever grabbed yours, be sure to block out some time and implement it. It's Timbo's Monster Prize Draw. Oh, yes, indeedly doodly. It's time to reward another motivated listener for taking some serious marketing action. Today's winner is... Samantha McKenzie of AcousticoLighting.com.au. And this is what Samantha has to say. She says, hey, Timbo. Long-time listener here. Congratulations on creating 500 episodes of a world-class podcast. Like that. World-class. My entry relates to the interview you did with Mr. Lee's noodles owner, Damian Lee. Amongst many tips, he suggested that some of the best publicity is gained by winning awards. It struck a chord with me, and I promptly entered my new lighting design into two industry awards. I was successful in winning a gold Good Design Award in Australia and an LIT award in the United States. That's awesome. The resulting publicity gained instant credibility from a brand, Acoustico Lighting. I was always confident with the quality of my design, but to have world-renowned design experts put their names behind it has been an absolute game-changer. Thanks, Timbo. Best regards, Samantha McKenzie from AcousticoLighting.com.au. Samantha, I think that's awesome. I, I hear time and time again, entering awards is a great process to go through. It sort of pulls all aspects of your business together. And to win one is a great marketing uh, initiative as well. So, well done. For doing that, you have won a full range of Liar's Spirits valued at over 500 bucks, hard copy of Jamie Mustard's book, The Iconist, a Bonjouro license, vouchers for Sendall, Flora and Fauna, and Tradies, some Mr. Lee's Noodles, Promotion on this show and a backlink in the show notes. To everyone else, please enter the Monster Prize draw. I'd love to know the ideas that you are implementing from listening to the show. Just send me a 100-word or less email to tim at timreid.com.au. If I read it out on air, you win. Well, how'd you enjoy that? If you loved it, if you didn't love it, if you're kind of feeling like, meh, could do better. Whatever. Just drop me a line over at smallbusinessbigmarketing.com forward slash 508. I read all the comments. I love hearing from you guys. There's plenty more where this came from, by the way, over on the Podcast One Australia app. Plus, you'll find my entire archive of episodes and blog posts over at smallbusinessbigmarketing.com. Now, next time around, you and I are going to catch up with Jeff Lottman, who believes not enough businesses are making use of licensing in their marketing, which I tend to agree, but there's also some good reasons why they're not. We cover all those blockages so that you can get on with the idea of licensing. He shows us how we do it. He gives us some case studies of businesses, big and small, that are doing it well. Interestingly enough, he also owns a very popular LA fashion brand called Fred Siegel. So this is a man of many talents. We must listen to him. If you're getting value from listening to this podcast, then please let other business owners know about the Small Business Big Marketing Podcast, which was presented by me, Timbo Reed, and cleverly put together by the elite team at Podcast One Australia. Until next time, thank you so much for tuning in. Now get out there and take action.